0: I'm Father Mitch Pacwa, and welcome to Scripture and Tradition, where we take a look at sacred scripture to understand it through tradition. But in these programs, we're actually focusing on how to pray over scripture, with scripture. Now, we'd love to have you be part of the show by adding your own questions or comments. You can do that during the live program, which is on Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, and the number you can call if you are in North America is 1-800-221-9460. 1-800-221-9460. If you are outside North America, then that won't work, so you can call Country Code 1, Area Code 205 2712 or you can send us questions and comments via email by writing to Tradition at ewtn.com or follow us and participate with the show on Facebook and YouTube. So today we'll look at the baptism of Jesus in Matthew chapter 3 and the revelation of the Trinity. As we've been doing, uh, using a book that I wrote to guide us in this. It's called Praying the Gospels, Jesus Launches His Public Ministry. You can get this book at EWTNRC.com where it is item number 52687. 52687. As you recall, we have been working through Matthew chapter 3. And verse 16 is where we are now. Now it simply says, And Jesus was baptized. Now let's reflect on that. We have people come to John who were being baptized in the River Jordan and they were confessing their sins. It says, these six, they were baptized by John in the River Jordan, confessing their sins. The Pharisees and the Sadducees had also come to the river banks, but they wanted to judge whether John was a prophet or not, and he ended up judging their deeds. That's why we see in verses seven to ten. When John saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now... The axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So that was his judgment on the Pharisees. And this is the way he treated the other people. With Jesus, it's very different. Jesus, our Lord, entered the water to be baptized. Unlike the people, he did not confess his sins. And unlike the scribes and Pharisees, he was not going to be judged by John. Now, this is something very important for us to understand. Why did Jesus enter into the water without confessing his sins? One of the very consistent Messages of the New Testament that appears in many different parts of our Christian tradition in Scripture, is that Jesus was without sin. So for instance, in First Peter chapter 2, verse 22, it says about Jesus that he committed no sin. And no deceit was found in his mouth. Deceit is something that belongs to Satan. Christ has no deceit. And he is truth personified, in fact, as we see in John fourteen six. Now, this is itself a, a passage citing Isaiah 53, verse 9. In Isaiah 53, verse 9, we see a a prophecy about Christ. It says, I quote, "...they made his grave with the wicked and his tomb with the rich, even though he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth." So, and that whole chapter of Isaiah 53 is a prophecy about the Messiah. In fact, on Good Friday, we read it as our first reading at the Liturgy of of the Communion Service in the Roman Rite. So this is a very important passage. And that's why Peter uh, applied that to Christ so clearly about him. But we also see other places. So it's not only St. Peter. But we also see in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that St. Paul wrote right around the year 54, where it says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Christ knew no sin. He was made sin in this sense. He was made a sin offering. The word for sin in Hebrew is chatat or chata, And the word for a sin sacrifice or an offering for sin is a chatat. So Christ was made a sin offering even though he knew no sin. And St. Paul therefore teaches that Christ knew no sin. It was not sinful at all. So that's Peter and Paul. Then in 1 John chapter 3, verse 5, it says, You know that he was revealed to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So it's Peter and Paul, and now we see John. And then finally, we also see this mentioned twice in the letter to the Hebrews. In Hebrews 4, verse 15, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. For it was fitting that we should have such a holy high priest, holy, blameless, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. So this letter also teaches. So it's Hebrews, first letter of John, first letter of St. Peter, and also uh, um, uh, St. Paul. All of these teach that Jesus is without sin. So given that teaching, we, it makes very good sense that our Lord did not go to be baptized and confess his own sins he didn't have any he is without sin this is a very important part of our doctrine so we see that Christ humbled himself to become man and also to be baptized with everybody else And he does that as Hebrews 4.15 says. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in uh, every uh, respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. Christ meets us where we are. We're sinners. And he stands next to us. He stands shoulder to shoulder with us. In fact, we'll even see that he will die in between two sinners. He doesn't disdain the sinners. He doesn't say, oh, I can't stand to even be close to sinners. Nope, it's not his approach. It's rather that he is there with us. Now, This is part of the reason for him to be baptized. He is standing shoulder to shoulder with the sinners who were confessing their sins. And there's something about this that's very important. If Christ did not come down to our level, we would uh, would be overwhelmed by his holiness. This is something that happens. I've used this example in the past. When you are with a baby and you're playing with a baby, you do very well to come down to the floor and be with them at the floor level. If you stand up, they see this tall giant in front of them. Whereas when you come down to their level and see eye to eye, They relax more. It's not so imposing. Same thing is true when I was domesticating a couple of feral cats that had been in my backyard. I would feed them, and they would come to the food, but I would lie in my stomach so my eye would be at their level rather than this very tall, imposing figure uh, over against these little kittens. And I later domesticated them. And you do that when you're dealing with a lot of animals. You come to their level. Uh, It helps them to relax. Well, our Lord does that with us. If he didn't, we would be like uh, Simon Peter, who after the miraculous catch of fish, where his nets are full to the point of breaking, he wants to say, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. This is, you know, he's just overwhelmed by this uh, great miracle. But that's not why Christ became flesh. He didn't want to frighten us away. He wants to come to our level. He wants to meet us where we are and bring us to where he is. This is key. That is... uh, one of the big reasons that our Lord is baptized at the Jordan, that He very much wants to be with us at our level. So that's very important. And then, think about St. Paul, who said in First uh, Timothy chapter 1 uh, verse 15. The saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. He's very well aware that Christ's purpose in becoming flesh was to save us sinners, to redeem us from the sin. And he recognized himself as being the worst of the sinners. But the reason that he was not overwhelmed is that he realized Christ's humility, Christ's humility in emptying himself. In fact, in an earlier epistle, the epistle to the Philippians, chapter 2, beginning with verse 6, St. Paul wrote that though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not regard Equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. Part of the reason that he died on the cross, he died like a slave. Roman citizens were not allowed to be crucified, but they could be uh, beheaded non-citizens and slaves were crucified. And so Christ's death on the cross indicates that. And St. Paul understands fully that Christ has made himself, has emptied himself of glory in order to come down to our level. And this is very important for understanding why our blessed Lord Jesus began His public ministry with this baptism. He wants to meet us at our level. He wants to meet the sinners where they are. Will He try to correct them? Absolutely. Will He call sinners out and try to exhort them to be better? Yes. But He will still meet them where they are so that he can exhort them to be better. That will be true of his apostles, especially, but also of the other sinners. This is part of the reality. And he really wants to identify with us sinners without at the same time committing sin. That is not the way we're supposed to do this. We identify with fellow sinners. We don't commit their sins. We don't say, well, I'll be one of the guys and I'll just go ahead and get drunk and all this other stuff. No, that's not what we do. But we do identify with them and we spend time with the sinners without committing sin. That's what Christ Himself did. Now, What are some ways that we can meditate on this passage? This is a very important one to consider. First, I recommend that you imagine yourself as one of the people coming to the Jordan to be baptized by John. Imagine yourself being in the crowd. and Use your imagination and then... Instead of focusing on how everybody looked and the ancient clothing and stuff like that, focus more on your own sins. What are the sins that St. John might call out and say this is what you have to repent of? Don't worry about the sins of other people. A lot of people are in the public eye and their sins are put out front. But this is not about them. It's about us confessing our sins. It's not about us confessing their sins, but it's about us taking a look at our own faults. That's what's key. And then think about that as he summons you to repent. Think also about how he calls out the Pharisees and the Sadducees, calling them a brood of vipers, Vipers are a poisonous snake, very dangerous. You don't want to get bitten by one of them. But we also see that while he criticizes those religious leaders, Jesus also comes and asks John to baptize him. John wants to be baptized by Jesus, but Jesus refuses. Picture that scene. We talked about that last week. And when Jesus enters the water, just like you and the other sinners, he meets you as he's in the water, as you seek forgiveness for your sins in the Jordan. Imagine Jesus being there with you. What would you say to him about what you're repenting over? What would you say about your life as he? looks at you and as he meets you in the waters of baptism what might be his You imagine a conversation with him what would you say back to him about your life about your sins about the things you need to have forgiven have that conversation and then as you imagine that back and forth pray in our father Let him take you to the Father. And with Jesus, you say those words, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. You know, make that prayer your own. And in this way, you would do well to meditate on this baptism of Jesus. All right, we're going to take a break and we'll come back and then we'll talk about how the Blessed Trinity makes itself manifest for the first time. So please stay with us. welcome back. Um, we are now ready to start the sixth meditation in this chapter on the baptism of Jesus, the sixth and last. The verse, uh, this is about the manifestation of the Blessed Trinity at Jesus' baptism in the Jordan. The verse, verses are Matthew three sixteen to 17. And when Jesus was baptized, He went up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So this shows the manifestation of the Trinity. The fact that it says the heavens were opened Notice that's a passive voice, verb. They were open. The heavens didn't open themselves. They're, they were open because God is the one opening. This is what they call the divine passive, that they use a passive voice to show God is acting. And it's meant to be, reveal something extremely important. Now, our starting point, and the starting point for Israel, is that from the time of Abraham forward, the people of Israel had to learn there's only one God. There are not multiple gods. They oftentimes had to suffer a lot of punishment, even uh, exile in Babylon, that the Lord is the one and only God there is no other. This was repeated by the prophets many times. as in Isaiah 45, verse five, that there is no, uh, I am the Lord and there is no other." And there are a variety of other verses as well. Now when Jesus emerged from the water of the Jordan, this same one God revealed that he is a unity. That he's still one, but the unity of three persons, that is, a trinity. And this is extremely important for us to see that the we don't believe in three gods, that's forbidden us. We believe in one God, we say that in our creed, but we see that the one God is tri personal. And that is three persons in the one being. And in this way we see that first the Father speaks to identify Jesus as His Son. And then it says the Holy Spirit hovers over Him. This is exactly what the Spirit of God had done at the creation of the world. Um, there was an earlier version of the New American tr- uh, translation um, that, that was the official Catholic translation. It's the St. Joseph edition, I think. They had translated it as a mighty wind. Hovered. That, no, it's the Spirit of God, the Ruach Elohim, the Spirit of God was hovering over the water. I don't know why somebody chose to translate it as a mighty wind. Um, but be that as it may, because the word mighty isn't there. If it's anything about wind, it's the wind of God. But it's, in that case, it really meant the Spirit of God. And it's the same Spirit of God that hovered. Remember in Genesis 1, verse 2, the earth was formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep while the wind, while. The Spirit of God swept over the face of the waters. And again, instead of swept over, I still prefer the word hover. Merechefet is a participle form. And so it would be present tense. So the Spirit of God is hovering over the water. And this also makes sense as Jesus is there in the water of baptism. Now, keep in mind, our Lord Jesus had not told John the Baptist, hey, when you baptize me, watch this, it's going to be so cool. No, He doesn't inform him. And this is because he is not trying to demonstrate his power. Satan would tempt him to to show off power by jumping off the pinnacle of the temple. That's not what our Lord does. It's rather He is there in all humility to fulfill all righteousness. And as He fulfills that righteousness, and we talked about that earlier, fulfilling that righteousness leads to a new revelation and a deeper knowledge of God, that the one God is three persons, the Father who calls Jesus his Son and the Spirit who hovers. Now imagine this. Use your imagination to picture the Spirit of God hovering over Jesus like a gentle dove. And when the voice speaks and says, that Jesus is his beloved son. It clearly indicates that God is there for his father. If God calls us, calls Jesus his son, it means that he's a father. That's clearly what it means. None of the prophets in Israel, none of the rabbis, claim to have God as their personal father. That was not something we see there. You see a number of passages in the Bible that uh, mention uh, father, uh, God as a father to the whole nation of Israel. In Exodus 4.22, for instance, Israel is called God's firstborn son. And also in Isaiah 11, verse 1, Israel's the Lord's son. And then a few other places uh, mention that Israel fails to recognize God and accept Him as their father. Um, And a few passages say that He's a father, but speaking to the nation, not to an individual. In contrast to those passages where the Lord is a father to the nation, here we see that THE FATHER ACKNOWLEDGES JESUS AS HIS SON. HE'S GOING TO DO IT AGAIN LATER IN THE GOSPEL, MATTHEW 17, 5. WHEN AT THE TRANSFIGURATION THE FATHER WILL SAY, THIS IS MY SON, LISTEN TO HIM. IN THE OF COURSE, IN MARK 9 AND LUKE 9. SO THIS IS A VERY IMPORTANT EXPERIENCE FOR CHRIST. And in addition to identifying Jesus as his son, the Father quotes from Isaiah, Isaiah 42, verse 1, with a slight change. In Isaiah 42, it says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him, and he'll bring forth justice to the nations. But now the Father changes it from behold my servant to behold my son. And this is a very important. By the way, also in Holy Week, we will have that reading from Isaiah 42. I believe on Monday of Holy Week we have that in the Roman Rite. So this is uh, something that is very important. It's not St. Matthew, who as the editor of the gospel, the one who's writing this gospel, you know, interprets Jesus' baptism as fulfilling that prophecy. No. It's God the Father who brings in the prophecy, and it's God the Father who applies the prophecy of Isaiah 42, verse 1, to Jesus. This is a very important thing. Many other times, Matthew will have an editorial note saying, this was to fulfill what the Lord had said through Isaiah or Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. But in this case, it's not the editorial comment. It's God the Father saying that. Now, this is makes it clear that as the Holy Spirit gently descends upon Jesus and the Father speaks of His pleasure with His Son, they're pouring out their infinite love upon the Son. That the Father and the Holy Spirit are filled with great joy and pleasure at this first Event, this first stage of the Son's mission. And this is where the quiet private life in Nazareth, in the family life with Saint Joseph and Our Lady, comes to an end. And then they are also blessing this new turning point where the ministry of Jesus enters the public. This is the beginning of a public uh, uh, ministry. And it also is a reassurance of that love right before Christ begins his 40 days of prayer and fasting. Now, how do we pray over this? Let's take a look at a couple things. First, we Christians who receive baptism become the adopted Sons and daughters of God. Jesus Christ is God's Son by nature. He has the divine nature. You and I are adopted into the family. Take a look at Romans chapter 8. And what we ought to do is picture that the Blessed Trinity shows the light. In who we are, the Blessed Trinity cherishes who we are. Imagine try to picture the Father saying that you are his beloved child, your beloved daughter or son, with whom I'm well pleased. And this is an act of faith that God would say that to you and treat you with such delight. And sometimes people are tempted to think, well, why would my life be so hard if God takes delight in me? Why is my life so hard? I suffer a lot. Life is difficult, and it is. Why do things go so badly? Things don't go my way. Keep that thought in mind. And we picture being there with Jesus as the blessed Trinity manifests itself, as the Father said, this is my beloved Son, as the Holy Spirit hovers gently. Keep in mind that this is right before Christ is going to have to fast for 40 days and 40 nights. And then throughout the public ministry, he's going to be rejected. People are going to lie about him, and eventually they're going to crucify him. He's going to suffer quite a lot. And, you know, this will lead to a point where he even has to say, Father, into your hands, I commend my spirit. And this indicates that even God's only begotten Son, who experienced the delight of his Father, an infinite delight, and he returned it infinitely with no sin, And yet he had to suffer in this life too. And we need to see our suffering in that light. Not as, well, I I don't want to serve you if you're you're going to let bad things, what, what good is your pleasure in me if you let bad things happen? No, that's not the way we approach it. We approach it as Christ did. And then, another thing you might do, think back in your life. There may be times, and this is a good thing to do in your spiritual life. Remember moments when you found a real peace with God. Remember those moments of joy and and peace that God gave you. Um, Sometimes that peace gives us a security that nothing else ever could. No people, nothing in the world, no money, no power, nothing could give us that peace and security. And again, imagine the Father speaking to us, Behold my child, in whom I'm well pleased. Use that in your imagination, and imagine yourself speaking back to the Father. Ask God the Father, What does your pleasure in me mean? Your delight in me. Why do you have that? And also ask for the grace to accept His loving care for you and His loving approval and His consolation, especially when you have difficult moments, especially when life is hard. Ask for that grace to accept these consolations and to the grace not to allow the bad things in life to undo you. Don't let this lack of consolation be something that goes against your your peace, but rather see that even in these difficulties, I'm with Christ. He's without sin and he suffered a lot. And I'm a sinner, and of course I suffer a lot of times because of my own foolishness, but sometimes not just my own foolishness, but because other people do bad things. This is something we can very much consider in our own meditation on this passage. And again, conclude the prayer with an Our Father. Say that prayer. And in this regard, I think it would be good for us to... Remember, now we've been going through difficult times for the last couple of years between COVID and the economy not being quite so good. A uh, wide variety of things have not worked out quite so well for us. And I think it's very important to see that what's going on in Ukraine right now is far, far worse. And yet so many folks are taking refuge in Christ. And that they are trying to do what God wants them to do in the midst of a very difficult situation. And for us to put our own sufferings and difficulties in perspective and seek to serve our Lord the best we can. Also, pray for the people of Ukraine that as they go through this, they might be able to come through it. All right. We're going to take a little break and then we'll take a look at some of your questions and comments and emails. So please stay with us. Welcome back. I want you to join me tomorrow night at 8 p.m. for EWTN Live when I'll be sitting down with Sister Faustina Maria Pia, SV, Sisters of Life. And we will talk about what it means to place our trust in Jesus no matter what the circumstances. Again, that's very relevant for the situation the world is in now with a terrible war going on in Ukraine, as well as other places. So, how do we trust in Jesus no matter what is going on and not give up hope? All right, we'll start off with a caller this afternoon. Hello, Marguerite. Marhaba Nushkarallah Wenty. I am Roman Catholic Abunakifek, but I'm also Maronite. Uh My question to you: The Divine Liturgy and in the Maronite rite, we refer to Lent as the Great Lent. Yes. Can you please tell me? I'm a little embarrassed to ask. No one ever tells taught us this. um, How where we get the origins from, and why is the term used as the Great Lent, whereas Mm -hmm. the Catholics just call it the Lenten season? Right. Thank you, Albona, and God bless you. God bless you too, yeah taking it off you. the um reason we call it great Lent is because there is another season of fasting, uh, but it's not as strict a season of fasting before the Feast of the Assumption. That's the lesser Lent. and then also, uh, as you would know in the Maronite Rite, we have six weeks of Advent. And they don't call it Advent, we call it the season of announcement. But for, it goes on for six weeks, and it's also uh, a lesser um, uh, you know, uh, uh, fasting. So it's not as strict as Great Lent. Um, before the great feast of Easter. Easter is the great feast, and then it's followed by 40 days of celebration of Easter's time. And so that's why we do that. Uh, But the great season of Lent is before Easter, then Lesser Lent before uh, Assumption, and then again before Christmas. That's all that that they mean. It's not quite as strict as uh, fasting. All right, we have another caller Dennis, where are you calling from? Oh, good afternoon, Father Mitch. I'm calling from Montclair, New Jersey, and I have a question for you. Sure. Uh, In the scriptures, it's noticed that Jesus had made the comment, flesh and Mm -hmm. blood shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Yet, Mm -hmm. in the Old and New Testament, there's examples of being raised into heaven, body, and soul. Mm -hmm. Is this a contradiction, or is I just don't understand it? Well, I'm going to start. I don't know about you. I, you know, I don't generally like to suggest that our Lord is contradicting himself. Um, and I, when I, I hadn't thought of those two things going together. And I would need to take a look a little bit more at that. Um, but there's the main purpose of what he says... Is to show that on the natural level, you don't deserve heaven as your inheritance. You know, uh, uh, this is something that shows up in certain forms of philosophy, that um, everybody is a, 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 a child of God, and everybody is a brother and sister. It's what sometimes called fog bomb, fatherhood of God and brotherhood of man. And the idea is that we're all born that way. No, we're born in rebellion, in original sin. And this is the main uh, reason uh, that we, you know, that... Uh, we have to have Christ, that we don't deserve heaven, and it's not just by the fact that we're flesh and blood. It's by the gracious salvation of God. Now, even in the case of Our Lady's Assumption or the Assumption of the prophet Elijah in the Old Testament, as you correctly say, they didn't get to heaven because of merely being flesh and blood. They didn't do it because they happened to be humans. They deserve heaven. This was an act of God's salvation, an act of God's grace in the case of both of them. And I might, I'll have to take a look at that a little bit more, see if some of the fathers have deeper thoughts on it than I do at this point. But I think that is the key issue that's going on. Does that help? Yes, that does help. Good, good. I'll I'll, I'll try to look into that a little bit more, too. But I think that's the main issue at stake. All right, we have another caller. Sally, where are you calling from? Hi, Father Mitch. I am calling from Michigan, and I'm so happy to talk with you. I love listening to you. Thank you, ma'am. I, I appreciate it. You're that. welcome. I have a question regarding um, marriage and divorce and annulment. Mm-hmm. I know in the Bible where uh, Christ said where, where men and women have been joined together, let no man separate. And then we have the annulment, and I'm wondering how that is, how we can have an annulment when he said that, and I know that I always go back in my mind to he gave, um, you know, Peter the power to um, forgive uh, through the church to, um, you know, hold mm-hmm. bind in heaven. Or, bind and or loose. In, uh, yes. Right. So I'm a little confused about annulment. And sure. then the other question was just um, regarding the Maronite and Latin, right? If you have a family that's both Maronite and Latin, are you required to follow one over the other? Okay. Uh, first of all. Uh, let's do the simple one, and that's about the, uh, a marriage that where there are two rights. In that c- case, the parents, the, 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 well, the married couple, are, you know, they come from two rights. Say the, the husband is Maronite and the wife Roman Romanite. And in that case, they both remain in their own rights. They don't switch rights unless one of them makes a formal petition to switch rites, and that has to go to the patriarchs. Patriarch of the Latin rite is the pope, and then the Patriarch, say of the Maronite rite is uh, his beatitude, uh, uh, Cardinal uh, Bishara Rai. And it has to go through their offices. I They don't personally get involved, but it goes through their offices to switch rites. Otherwise, they, um, would uh, stay in their own rights. But the children, according to canon law, belong to the right of the father. So whatever right their father was, that's the right that the children uh, take. So if the father is a Maronite, then the children are Maronites. If the father is Roman right, then the, the children are Roman right. Oh, uh, that's that's how that goes. So that's a, a simple thing. In terms of you know, let no man put asunder, and then annulments. What's going on here? It's very important to see that the investigation for an annulment is an investigation to see whether or not the conditions. For an authentic marriage were there. It's not divorcing a legitimate marriage. If the marriage was legitimate, then they, they, they can't do anything about it until death do them part. But if, in the case of uh, uh, various folks, um, you know they can show that the necessary conditions, FOR A MARRIAGE WERE NOT PRESENT, THEN THE CHURCH DECREES THE MARRIAGE ANNULLED, THAT IT NEVER WAS A MARRIAGE IN THE FIRST PLACE. THEY, they in, in WENT INTO IT IN GOOD FAITH, BUT SOMETHING VERY IMPORTANT WAS MISSING. Uh, I KNOW OF SOME, THERE ARE A LOT OF REASONS FOR IT. YOU NEED TO CHECK WITH you know, A LOCAL PASTOR AND SUCH FOR THAT, BUT you know, uh, IN ONE CASE, a, I know of a, a wife lied to her husband and only after a number of years of marriage did she admit to him that she never wanted to have children. Well, one of the conditions for a legitimate marriage is to be open to children. And she lied to him when she said she was. Now, that's deception, and that kind of deception makes the marriage invalid. It doesn't set up for a divorce. It said that there was no marriage in the first place and that he was, in fact, free to marriage, remarry. Or in another case, a husband who was secretly addicted to cocaine and was high at the wedding. Well, he didn't have the ability to take vows and prepare himself to take a serious commitment like marriage, because these drugs were ruling his life. And he did not have the wherewithal to make that commitment. Those are the kind of things, and there are lots of other situations that show up, but that would be the kind of things that we have, okay? So that's, that, that's uh, no one says, no, there was no marriage in the first place. All right, we have a question from somebody who's watching us on YouTube, and it says, Father Mitch, I am hesitant to believe that I have a constant, dedicated guardian angel because of past injury, and it seems to be theological speculation rather than divine revelation. How do we know? What do we do? Um, Well, actually, it's not speculation. It's our Lord Jesus, who in the Matthew, uh, uh, the Gospel of St. Matthew, I believe it's chapter 18 or, or 19, uh, says that, you know, do not despise these little ones. I think it's chapter 19. Do not despise these little ones because uh, their angel is before my Father constantly. So this is not... A speculation. Now, the injuries, they're, they're, I've certainly been in plenty of very dangerous situations. And there are times when it, it seems that um, you know, we have uh, you know, a, a lot of dangers that barely got eye A man pointed a pistol at me, and pulled the trigger twice, uh, and it didn't fire. And he was only eight yards away from me. I would have been a goner. And I remember thinking on the way home that my guardian angel had very high blood pressure. This was close. This was very close. But there are other times we do get injured. Now, this is something that we have to be careful to say, well, I didn't get saved from this injury. Yeah, that may be true, but neither were you killed in it. You know, you're still alive. And there's there's a variety of factors that go into life. The bad intention of some people, like the guy that was pulling the trigger and pointing a gun at my face, That's his bad intention. And lots of other people have bad intentions, and we're dealing in a variety of other situations. It's it's not simple by any means. But we look and see, what help can I get from my guardian angel? And even if I do get injured, what's the next step for me to take? How do I serve God and ask him to continue to guide us? So that's a very important thing. All right, we have run out of time. Um, May the Lord bless you and keep you and cause His face to shine upon you. May He lead you in all of your ways by His peace. May God bless you, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. And again, we can bring you this program and all our programs only because this network is brought to you by you. So please keep us in between your gas bill, electric bill, and cable bill, and we'll pay our bills too. Thank you.